Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. I believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Daniel, and today's episode is Daniel chapter 4, Temporary Insanity. All right, it's so good to be back with you again. And before we get started, I just want to say thank you for all the questions that you have sent me. And it seems like people always um, start off by saying, oh, I know you probably get a million questions. But what that does is it excites me because it tells me that you're digging in, you're having thoughts, you're looking to discover new truths about God. And so it's actually one of the most encouraging things. Um, So I love hearing your stories. I love talking about this with you guys. And this has been really fun and exciting. Well, this is one of the longest chapters in, it is, it is the longest chapter in the book. And something I found out through listening to Chuck Missler, who's now passed, but this message had been taught within the last decade. And he said that the book of Daniel is the most authenticated book in the Old Testament, meaning that there has been real evidence that what the book of Daniel is saying is true. And he said most of that authentication, I can't even say that word, um, came through recent years of discovery and um, archaeological um, digs and things like that. So a lot of times scholars are saying, oh, this didn't really happen. This was just um, a book of encouragement for things that were going on in the New Testament. Well, they are finding more and more evidence all the time that this book existed, that the characters existed, and that the kingdom was matching in archaeological findings what the book of Daniel is saying. So that's really exciting. Well, this is an unusual chapter. It's a decree that Nebi issued following his recovery from his temporary insanity. It was his testimony. We talked about this a little bit last week, and the enemy knows the power behind our testimonies, and he will lie to keep you living in shame so that you don't dare tell anyone because it truly is a weapon to bring people to salvation. Freedom from your past can come through you sharing your story of what God has done, but it all your story also does something else. It, it allows the hearer to find freedom as well. Years ago, I had met a new friend in church and she got really involved. She was in small group. She served on teams. She went on the mission trips. Every time the door was open, her and her family um, were in church. Her next step really became um, evident that it was time for her to lead a small group, but she wouldn't. In fact, we started looking and she wouldn't do anything that really required a leadership position. And finally, I came to realize why. She had a secret that was from her past and she disqualified herself. Well, we ended up inviting a few girls who had walked um, the journey with her up till this point and who had discipled her and really um, spent time with her and helping her in a Christian walk. And through very careful coaching, we, in a safe spot with people that could be trusted, we encouraged her to tell us her story. And you know what? That day she found freedom in that, and she was able to move forward with her and her husband taking on leadership roles and really being effective 
in ministry because they used the tool of their testimony and that became powerful in many marriage small groups to come. There is freedom for you in sharing who you were and who you are because of God. And that also encourages other people to find that same freedom in Christ. So back to our story. Um, I want to remind you that this portion of the text was written in Aramaic. Chapters 2 through 7 were all written in the common language of Daniel's day. And I want to specifically talk about this chapter being written by a pagan man with a pagan worldview. We need to keep that in mind in the light of what we're going to study. So verses 1 through 3 was um, addressed to every people, nation, and language. What this means is this decree that Nebuchadnezzar declared would have been posted throughout his empire. And he ends up starting off the letter with, may your prosperity increase, which was a very common salutation. And he says, I'm pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders of the most that the Most High did for me. His kingdom is everlasting and it's advancing now. So again, this was his testimony, this decree. It starts off with a dream, another dream in chapter, I mean, in verse four. Nebuchadnezzar was at ease and his life was flourishing when he had another dream. He was comfortable with all his accomplishments, but now this dream deeply disturbed him. So once again, he called all the people who do the magic. Why? Why did he do that? Why? We've all asked, why didn't he go to Daniel first? Why does he fall back on old habits? We're going to answer that later, but, um, we are, um, we, we know that he saw the God of wonders and all the miraculous things, and he even gave him credit at the time, but he truly never decided to follow only him. And I can't speak for King Nebuchadnezzar, but I can speak for us. When we stop abiding in him, we very quickly revert back to our worldly reactions and reasonings because it's so ingrained in us. 24-7 around the clock, we are deeply rooted in a culture that is anti-God. So when we are not abiding with him daily, spending that time in prayer, spending that time in the word, we quickly go back to what we have been indoctrinated in. And that is exactly what I think that we're seeing here. We have to renew our minds daily. And this study is part of that process. So yay for us and yay for what God is doing in our hearts and lives through this. So as you know, these guys, these magic makers did not have the answers or maybe they did, but they weren't saying the answers. So in verses 8 through 12, Daniel enters, and in this chapter, he is addressed as Daniel called Belshazzar. What is happening here is that this is a decree written after the story is lived out, and we know that Nebuchadnezzar has a heart change. So at this point in history, he is now referring to Daniel as his Hebrew name, but he needs to remind the kingdom who he's talking about, and so he does give him credit by saying, hey, I'm talking about Belshazzar. That is such a hard name for me. I'm never going to name my kid that. Um, Obviously not. It's to worship a pagan god, but it's a joke. Um, Daniel, I just don't want to get any emails. Um, Daniel uh, deserves the credit for all he's done. And so Nebuchadnezzar is addressing him by both names. This dream is about a tree that is in the middle of the earth. It's height is great. It grew large and strong. It reached the top of the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Would have been the known kingdom at the time. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit uh, abundant. There was food for all and wild animals could find shelter under it. Every living creature was fed. And Nebuchadnezzar tells us that as he's lying in bed, he also saw a vision 
of a watcher coming down, which is a type of angel, a type of messenger, comes down from heaven and he calls out loudly, cut the tree down, chop off the branches, strip the leaves, scatter the fruit, let the birds and the animals flee, but leave the stump with its roots and put a band of iron and bronze around it and then let the dew drench Nebuchadnezzar as it is going to drench the ground and he will share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed of that of an animal for seven periods of time and this is a decree and command so that all will know that the most high is ruler over the kingdom of men he gives it to anyone he wants. I want us to really keep that tucked in the back of our mind because this, something like this will be addressed three times in this chapter alone, yet it has been a constant theme theme through this entire book. Okay, let's talk a minute about this tree. This tree is King Nebuchadnezzar. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the cosmic mountain in biblical theology back when we were interpreting the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Well, trees were a widespread spiritual concept in the ancient world as well. In Mesopotamia literature, it's called the cosmic or the world tree, and Nebi would have immediately known that he was the tree. The tree usually represented great rulers of the world. Now, this got brought up in my small group, and several of the ladies kind of thought that Nebuchadnezzar's wise men actually knew exactly what this meant, but they were perhaps too scared to tell him because, you know, if the king doesn't like all the accolades and the encouragement from their court, they can punish you by death. I kind of agree with them because this really fits the narrative after I studied this concept of the cosmic tree. Daniel was even slow to tell him what it meant. He was a little fearful, a little disturbed. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's worldview and belief would have seen the god Marduk, who we've met before, as the one who assigned him as divine, and he would have been the one who helped Nebuchadnezzar make Babylon prosperous. And this dreamed, in this dream, seeing the foreign Yahweh bring about the destruction and restoration of the tree without usurping his empire would have been a message to the king that it was actually Yahweh who placed him in power. Now, as I was studying this, I thought, what an amazing thing that the God of the universe is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in his own cultural language, in his own cultural myths that are pagan. God can move down and speak to him in a message that allows Nebuchadnezzar to understand exactly what he's saying. In the Bible, it lists many places where spiritual encounters took place underneath a tree. So while this was a popular concept in the ancient pagan world, it is true in the Bible as well. In Genesis 12, 18, and 21, we see Abraham having these spiritual encounters during three different under three different trees. Joshua in chapter 24 is under a terebinth tree, and he says it's the sanctuary of the Lord. Gideon sits under this type of tree whenever he um, runs into a messenger. And in 1 Samuel 31, Saul was buried under a tamarisk tree. Many, and I could go on and on and on, but I literally just ran out of time, and I knew there wouldn't have been enough time in this segment. But it's a very interesting thing to study that Spiritual beings seem to meet mankind under trees all throughout the text. So now it's time to interpret the dream. Daniel was stunned and alarmed. He said that the tree is you, 
and it is a sentence from the Most High that he has passed against you. You will be driven away from your people to live in the wild, and you will feed on the grass for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that heaven rules. Here we see this again, that he has to acknowledge that God is ruler over all. And as for leaving the tree and stump, or the, 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 the stump of the tree and its roots, your kingdom will be restored as soon as you knowledge, acknowledge this truth. And he encourages them to separate from your sins, to repent. Here we have to stop because this is important. We see a follower of Yahweh speak a hard truth to a sinner. Daniel did not seem to enjoy this and even wished that this message had been for somebody else. But he loved Nebuchadnezzar enough to warn him and then to encourage him to repent. Repent means to turn away. It actually does not mean to say, I'm sorry. It means to turn away from your sin. Stop going in that direction. As Christ followers, we have to operate in the same truth and grace balance. And if we do it properly, it will bear much fruit. We cannot just let people who are in our lives and who look to us, um, we cannot let them believe that they can continue living in sin. Now, I'm not saying just go up to a stranger, somebody you barely know, and be one of those loud evangelists on the street that says, hey, you're all going to hell. That is not what I'm saying. But we have influence in our circles. And when they open the door, we need to be quick to see it even if it's uncomfortable, just like Daniel felt it was uncomfortable, we have to speak truth in love because it will bear fruit. And we see that it ended up through a series of time bringing Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. You need, we need to encourage people to feed their spirit more than their flesh. And we need to disciple these people once they repent. We can't just leave them there and go, oh, good, you turned away and you're going into a new direction. We need to invite them into a world where we are telling them, okay, you left that, but go for this now. Fill your, your, your soul, fill your spirit with these things and walk them on that path. Well, continuing on in the story in verse 28, we see that this dream actually does happen to him 12 months after the warning. Don't you know that he kind of forgot about this after 12 months? I mean, there's been things in my life I've been kind of fearful for. And after a couple of weeks, I think, oh, I guess um, nothing bad's going to happen. But it was 12 months later that he was on his rooftop boasting in all his accomplishments and grace in and greatness. And one of the things or several of the things that Nebuchadnezzar had accomplished was he dug out canals from the Euphrates River that flowed all through the city. Don't you think that was gorgeous? And he had um, constructed the hanging gardens of Babylon that became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He embellished the major streets in the city, and he really did a lot of work on his favorite temples, making them large and grand. I can totally relate to him boasting in his works. I'm telling you, when I finish a landscaping project or some big project on our home, I literally will walk around my yard and just look back at the beauty of of what we've created. I like to admire things. And so I can only imagine if I am making these amazing accomplishments that I could very well be on the roof just boasting in my greatness. Um, This is man's greatest hurdle, pride. And it's not just a message for Nebuchadnezzar. It is a message to all. All of us that we pride comes before the fall we have to humble ourselves so 
In the middle of his posting, he hears a voice come down, and he reminded Nebuchadnezzar that he would be driven out and living, living with the wild animals until he acknowledges the Most High, here it is again, as ruler over all the kingdoms and gives it to anyone he wants. This is the third time this message has been given to Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter alone. And at that moment of this voice speaking, the sentence was executed. Now, he lost his mind for a period of seven something. Many scholars think it was years. Um, so he, he did lose his mind and he lived like a wild animal. And there's a couple of theories behind what this mental illness was. And I might be butchering how to pronounce this, but there's two different um, conditions, bone and boanthropy and zoanthropy. The bonanthropy is when you believe that you are an ox or a cow. And the other one is a belief that you are any animal. This is actual things documented in medicine. This is also, there's also a reference to the Epic of Gilgamesh. If you are familiar with that, that's an ancient um, Babylonian or Mesopotamian um, work that has been discovered. And it's a story of a flood, a creature going through the flood. And one of the creatures in it is in Kiddu, and he is an animal-like creature, and he was exiled from society. So that might have been something that spoke to the people of this day. I don't really know. But um, one, one of these truths um, could possibly be what um, Nebuchadnezzar was struggling with. So we do know that he was given a chance to repent at the end of the seven periods of time. He looked up to the heaven. He did repent from, and his sanity was returned. He immediately praised God and he was reestablished then over his kingdom and even more greatness came to him. The last uh, verse says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven because all of his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, my takeaways on this chapter, I had three big takeaways that I really literally left me in awe of the goodness of God. The first thing is I am blown away at God's pursuit of this pagan man. He was given chance after chance of God showing himself as all-powerful and, and for Nebi to turn to him. That is grace. He um, shows himself to all his creation, God does. And if you have somebody that you are praying for today, I just want to leave you with this encouragement. Find hope in the story that God goes after people more tenaciously and with more urgency than we do for the people that we love. He is for them. He is showing himself clear. So we need to be praying that they have eyes to see. And honestly, for people that I love, I pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth. Let even if it is temporary insanity to draw them to you so that they can enjoy your goodness for all eternity. God loves his people and he is constantly showing himself and giving chance after chance after chance. That's the amazing grace of God. The second takeaway I have is how quick it took for God to restore Nebuchadnezzar in light of how long it took for Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself. It seemed to me not really a fair trade, but God doesn't deal with fair in this beautiful exchange. We always get the better deal. God wants us to repent, to turn away from our sins, and then he deals with it. We don't have to walk around in years of shame, paying a penance for what we have done. We walk boldly and confidently in who we are in him. We're sons and daughters of the Most High. We talked in staff about the, that this week. 
One of my coworkers shared that, you know, this sometimes seems like a struggle because when we claim his promises, it can feel like we're just entitled in doing this. But God's gifts are for his children. And by relation, we have access to those gifts. They are for us. The last thing that was a big takeaway was that three times God tells um, him that he's the most high and ruler over the kingdom of men, and he will give it to anyone he wants. This is true today as it was then. In our society today, we see crazy megalomaniac rulers behind the scenes and behind the scene leaders um, like we did back then trying to build a kingdom of their own. And this is such a good reminder to us that like always, God is in complete control. And just like he used Nebuchadnezzar to get his children to repent, and he used Cyrus to get to lead his children back to their promised land and rebuild the temple. And then he used Alex to bring a common language and he used Caesar to build amazing roads. He can use these crazy um, egocentrical leaders today to advance his kingdom. He places rulers on the throne and he can remove them at any time. He's got this. So today I want you to find rest in that. I know that I do. He has us. Well, that pretty much sums up what I got from this chapter, I would love to hear from you and for you to share me some insights that you got because I love talking with other people. Just in my small group alone, there's so many different takeaways, things that I just read over and didn't think twice about and other people got so much out of. So that's one of the important things about doing this in community. We want to hear from you and um, we will talk to you um, next week in Daniel chapter five. See you then. Happy reading.